The sermon text is from Acts, but I'm going to alter the reading a little bit. In fact, I'm going to have you read from, uh, I'm going to read from another reading first, and then go to Acts, uh, a, a parallel and an illuminating passage from the New Testament. I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we go back to Acts, I'll only be reading the first 12 verses, but now I'd like to read uh, verses 1 through 16 of Galatians 2. And really, um, what we have here illuminates the kind of controversy that we are seeing in Acts chapter 15. We read this beginning in verse 1 of Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you." From those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they be circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now let us turn back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. 
And I'm going to focus this morning on verses 1 through 12. There's a lot here. We'll be getting to a number of other matters next week in the Jerusalem Council. But uh, today we're going to focus on verses 1 through 12. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Almighty God, illuminate your word now. Help your servant to bring words which are faithful and true. And by the one who is faithful and true, even Jesus Christ, speak to your people. Build them up in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Build them up in Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior under heaven, whereby those who look to him may be saved. Lord, be with us now. Feed us on Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, you perhaps have noticed it even as I read through Galatians 2 and read here from Acts chapter 15. Uh, We've been working our way through Acts. Really, we closed chapter 14. We're halfway through, right? There's 28 chapters. We're halfway through. And the halfway mark really does mark something quite different. Something new is afoot. Something we've not seen so far, though we have seen hints of the problem. What, What is it? Well, we've seen so far that the gospel has been attacked in various ways, but that attack, for the most part, has always come from without. It has been from the Jews who reject Christ or the Gentile authorities who they help to stir up against the church. But all that changes because now here in this text, there is an attack which comes upon the gospel, not from without, 
but from within. It's growing up in the church itself. And it is so threatening. It is so um, problematic that it occasions the very first council in the history of the church to deal with this matter, what we will refer to from here on as the Jerusalem Council. And today we come to this Jerusalem Council. We're just going to get our um, uh, nose under the tent, so to speak. There'll be much more that we will look at. But what I really want to focus in on is the, the problem that this council comes to address. The gospel is under attack. And today we'll consider the Council of Jerusalem as it's under attack. And the points are very clear and very simple. First of all, we will consider that what I just mentioned, the gospel attacked. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 6. And then finally, we'll see the gospel defended. Uh, and we'll see that in verses, excuse me, 1 through 5 and then 6 through 12 will be the gospel defended. So the gospel attacked and the gospel defended. And hopefully as we look at this and the work of the church, it will help us to better understand what the gospel is. For we dearly need to know that answer to, the answer to that question. We ever need to refresh ourselves in the good news of the gospel. Well, first of all, the gospel attacked. Uh, who is it that is doing the attacking? Well, I already mentioned it is not those without, but those within. It's those who are described in verse 1 and verse 5. In verse 1, they are described as being from Judea, and in verse 5, they belonged to the party of the Pharisees. There's a party of the Pharisees, even among the church. Luke earlier described certain ones like this as the party of the circumcision. Now, if Galatians 2 is describing the kinds of people in this group, and really it is, uncertain, uh, undoubtedly it is, uh, then that helps us to understand what's going on here. Galatians 2 tells us that uh, these people, uh, that those in, in, that Paul talks about in Galatians, represented themselves as seeming to be influential. Galatians 2.6. So perhaps uh, even these were some from among them who had come up from the church in Jerusalem. Uh, there we are told in Galatians chapter 2 that they come from James. James was certainly an authority in Jerusalem. It's not the case that James held to their views, to their doctrine. We're going to see that later on in chapter 15. But perhaps they present themselves as being those who, you know, as Paul says, seem to be influential who hobnob with the authorities in Jerusalem. And verse 1 tells us they come down from Judea to Paul and Barnabas. As Paul and Barnabas, we saw last time, they've completed their first missionary journey. It comes to an end. And what do they do? They return to the home church who sent them. They come back to Antioch. They come back to Antioch, and those from Jerusalem make a beeline to come and see them. So that's who these people are. What is their attack? What's the attack that they bring to the gospel? Well, uh, again, both the first and the last verses, verse 1 and verse 5, show us the attack. We read in verse 1, Some men came down from Judea. They were teaching brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And again, verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. How was the gospel under attack? Well, we see, if we can break it down, I think we see a, 
uh, three ways in which this attack breaks out. First of all, it's an attack that's built on uh, a truth. Secondly, it distorts that truth. And then thirdly, it calls into question the sufficiency of Christ and his work. It begins building on a truth. Isn't that always the way uh, Satan advances his attacks? He doesn't come out just by denying uh, all the truth. He slips in a partial truth or builds upon a truth. And uh, certainly circumcision was something clearly demanded by God in the Old Testament, right? Remember Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so serious was the matter of circumcision that you may remember in the evening as I was preaching through Exodus, when we came to Exodus chapter 4, for some reason, I'm still not quite sure, but uh, Moses had neglected to give his son the sign of the covenant, and God nearly breaks out and kills Moses. And so this was a very, very serious matter. But though God had required obedience to this uh, covenant sign in the old covenant, these Judaizers, if I can put it this way, they they go even well beyond what was required in the Old Testament. They say, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Yes, circumcision was commanded in the Old Testament, but was it the case in the Old Testament that there was no possibility of salvation apart from circumcision? Well, Paul addresses that very question in Romans chapter 4. He says this, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And, and then to answer that question, he appeals to the Old Testament. He appeals to Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 5, and he says this, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then he goes on to say, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Yes, circumcision was required. It it was a sign of God's covenant. But even under the old covenant, circumcision, if I can put it this way, was not the conduit for God's grace. I use that word particularly because we might think of uh, ourselves as Protestants, as heirs of the teaching of the Reformation, among the, critis, uh, among the criticisms of the Reformation to the Roman Catholic Church was that uh, the Roman Catholic Church held to a form of sacerdotalism. Now, that term sacerdotal simply means pertaining to the sacraments. A sacerdotalism is the teaching that God's grace is, uh, may be funneled out through the conduit of the sacraments. Well, here in Acts chapter 15, we see the original sacerdotalist, don't we? Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. That takes a truth from the Bible and twists it and distorts it. It makes something commanded by God to those who, are, who do believe to be perhaps not the entire basis of their salvation, but just a little bit, just a partial bit of it. Well, building upon a truth, the command for circumcision, and then distorting it, making it 
at least a part, of the, a part of their salvation, doing that, they, like every single person who attacks the gospel, every attack of the gospel does this. It calls into question the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. Again, Satan is truly serpentine. He is truly cunning, isn't he? He doesn't just try and sow discord in the church by coming and saying, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, you know, he's not really necessary. I don't think he would have gotten much of a following, and certainly these people were not teaching that. Uh, These people would have said, of course, of course you need Jesus, but you also need this. It's Jesus plus something else. And beloved, whenever you say, you must have Jesus plus something else to be saved. The gospel is gone. The gospel has been eradicated. You have destroyed, you have sucked all of the good news out of the gospel. To say that it's Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus baptism or Jesus plus faithfulness is to take away all of the good news of the gospel. Note verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. Uh, Don't you love Luke's uh, gift of understatement? (laughs) No small dissension. It was was all-out nuclear war going on here. And so there's a huge controversy between these two parties, those who we see who have attacked the gospel, uh, first building upon the truth, distorting it, and calling into question the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. How is that going to be settled? Well, uh, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas and the others are appointed by a local church to go up to a broader gathering of the church in Jerusalem. They were sent by the local church, verses 2 and 3, and received by a gathering of the broader church, verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Now, I just want you to know, I am going to address uh, the ecclesiastical dimensions of this more next week. I know that many of you who are longtime Presbyterians are aware that this is a very important uh, ecclesiastical text, but we'll, we'll deal with that more next week. I want us to see the problem that occasioned this ecclesiastical gathering, and so we've seen the gospel attacked. Now let's look at verses, one through, verses 6 through 12 and see the gospel defended. We read this beginning in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate. Now we just heard that there was not a small dissension between Paul and Barnabas and these folks, but now there's more debate, right? Now it's not just a debate of warring parties. There's debate at this gathering, at the meeting of the council. There is much debate. Uh, The primary concern of the first church council is to do this, to gather and to debate the gospel. Really, that's it. The first church council gathers and debates and declares what is the gospel. And if there is anything which should be taking place at church gatherings, at presbytery and synod meetings, it is defining and defending the gospel. And I believe that is what we do in in our church. If you come to a a presbytery meeting, sometimes people will say, what what do you do at these presbytery meetings? Well, uh, maybe read Acts chapter 15. 
really, it's, it's not exactly the same, but it's of the same cloth. There, as we examine those who would, would seek to go to the gospel ministry, as we do the work of Christian education, and sometimes, unfortunately, as we adjudicate charges brought against those who, who may in some way be denying the gospel, we do the very same thing that is happening here in Acts chapter 15. So the context of this defense of the gospel, it's not just individual Christians defending the gospel. Yes, you as an individual Christian need to defend the gospel. But the church, the church also has to stand up and defend the gospel. And that is what is going on here. Again, we read in verse 6 that there was much debate. And Luke then gives us, not all, there was much We would have much written. We don't have much, but we have a portion. We have a summary of this great debate that took place. And really, uh, Luke gives us two voices. He gives us uh, the voice of Peter on the one hand, and he gives us the voices of Paul and Barnabas on the other hand. Now, there, there are other voices, but in our text, verses 1 through 12, just these two, Peter and then Paul and Barnabas. So let's look at these. Concerning Peter, we read in verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, what do those words recollect? Do you remember? In the early days. It's so hard as you're reading the book of Acts. It just seems like one event follows another. There's a lot of time going on between these things. And so this would look back to what happened in Acts chapter 10 when God sent Peter to the home of this Gentile, to the home of Cornelius. Peter learned, or he should have learned, for it seems in Galatians 2 that uh, somehow he later forgot it, but now he's remembering. He learned In Acts chapter 10, that God granted him the privilege of declaring the gospel to this Gentile household, to Cornelius and those who were with him. And you will remember as I preached through Acts chapter 10 that the big barrier between Jews and Gentiles at that time, it wasn't that the Gentiles didn't have faith. That wasn't the big barrier, was it? We saw there were various God-fearers who were trusting in the God of Israel. They had faith. Yet even as these Gentile God-fearers had faith, they could not come close to Jews. Why? Because there was still, using the language of Ephesians 2, there was still a dividing wall of hostility. There was this, uh, these, these ethnic boundaries. There was circumcision and the ceremonial law. And as we read Peter's account here in Acts chapter 15, we see that Peter testifies to the fact that at the home of Cornelius, at the home of Cornelius, he saw God breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. Look at verse 8. God and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Who was the them that the Holy Spirit was given to? Cornelius. And his household. Acts 10.44 reads this way. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household. 
Now, you and I may be so accustomed to reading, uh, to, to having the life that we have in Jesus Christ, we may be so accustomed to that that we forget the mind-blowingness of what is happening in Acts chapter 10. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the triune God was granted to those who heard the gospel, who believed the word preached, to those who were uncircumcised Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was granted to come and to fall and to dwell upon these uncircumcised ones. Luke calls attention to the very fact back in Acts chapter 10 when all those things went, went, happened. Acts 10.45, And the believers from among the circumcised, they were there with Peter, the believers from among the circumcised who had come up with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. There was a dividing wall of hostility. God broke it down in Christ and showed that, demonstrated that there in Acts chapter 10. Peter says in verse 9 of our text, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Beloved, note the centrality of faith in this passage. God cleansed their heart by faith. And then verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The burdensomeness of the law in its redemptive historical and in its ceremonial capacities as shown, as spoken of by Peter, it was an unbearable yoke. God removed the yoke. He just removed it in Jesus Christ. And we see it even in the uh, development of the church. Again, in Acts chapter 10, God removed those things. The Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles. And now Peter says, you are trying, you are putting God to the test. That's the language of Exodus chapter 17, where Israel is found opposing God. Exodus 17 and Psalm 95, you are putting God to the test. You are trying to undo the very work of God himself. Through the work of Jesus Christ, Christ's fulfillment of the law of God, and by the people looking to Christ, an unbearable burden, an unbearable yoke was lifted. That that yoke should never be put back on people. The clearest defense of the gospel in our text is seen in verse 11, isn't it? We, We read this, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Notice how Peter's language in verse 11 answers precisely to the language that we read in verse 1 when the gospel is attacked. The gospel language, the go- the language that the gospel defended answers to the language of the gospel attacked. In verse 1 and 5, those attacking the gospel say, unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. But Peter says, verse 11, we believed, believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Beloved, here a line is drawn in the sand, a line which if you cross, if you go on the other side of this line, you're not on the side of true religion. 
There is one way of salvation for Jew and Gentile. And that way is by grace through faith. It is by grace through faith. Here we see the, the, the beauties and the glories of, the, of those truths rediscovered in the time of the Reformation. They weren't made up at the time of the Reformation. They were rediscovered because they're right here in the Holy Scriptures. Again, note the repeated use of the language of saved in our passage. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. But verse 11, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saved? Saved from what? We're not talking about being saved from some kind of, you know, economic hardship that a, a, a government bailout might grant you, for example. That's not the kind of saving that Peter is talking about. That which you need to be saved from, you need to be saved from the coming wrath of God against sinners. That is what Paul speaks of in Acts chapter 17. He says this, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that man? It is the God man, Jesus Christ. How can you be saved from the perfectly righteous judgment of God on that day when the one who God raised from the dead will be seated as the one who judges the entire world? How can you be saved on that day? Peter says, we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's only one way. It's not away from Jesus Christ. It's not Christ plus something. It's by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the testimony well, the testimony of Peter is very clear. Notice the testimony of Paul and Barnabas accords with that in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas go and they rehearse everything that has happened that has gone on in their missionary journeys. People should be rejoicing of this. We, one of the things that they certainly would have said uh, was uh, back when uh, the, the Jews were filled with jealousy. What happened to the Gentiles? The Gentiles were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Sounds just like Acts chapter 10 when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. Paul further elaborates on this matter of how one may be saved. If there's any question about the matter of salvation, how are you to be saved? Paul makes it clear in the very next chapter after this, in Acts chapter 16, there when a terrified Philippian jailer comes out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Their answer is this, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Listen. Listen, little children in the faith. I pray that your mother and your father are teaching you to uh, obey God's commandments. God's commandments in Christ are good. They're not burdensome. But do not ever begin to think that though they should instruct you in the ways of God to, to walk and to keep his commandments, do not ever think that you're keeping those commandments in any degree or in any way is the basis for your standing before God. Don't think, uh, God will save me if I 
try a little harder. God will save me if I uh, do what the pastor wants or what the elders want. Oh, I pray that, young ones, you would never be saddled with such a horrible thinking as that. You need one thing. You need faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for you. And parents, make sure that as you teach these little ones, yes, you do want to teach them to keep God's commands, but you want to always be very sure that there is never any misunderstanding that creeps in, that they should think, well, but, but God only loves me or will love me or accept me and, and will save me if I just am good enough or keep God's commands well enough. Do not let that creep into that, their thinking Work very hard to deliver them from such a misunderstanding because that's natural to the human heart. We have to work to deliver people from such misunderstandings. And if they are not, they will drown in despair. Do you believe this gospel, which Peter and Paul and Barnabas declare in our passage. Do you believe it? Are you actively trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? Again, this is not just about a controversy which went on a long time ago and is of no relevance. It is of absolute relevance for you and me today. Can you say with the hymn writer, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. How can you be saved? Will it be through faithful church attendance, through helping the poor and the needy, by reading your Bible enough or praying enough? All of those are good things, of course. But they do not contribute in one little bit to your salvation. If you have found peace with God that comes by a salvation which is by grace alone, through faith alone. If you have justification by looking through to, to Christ alone and faith alone. If that is true of you, let that sink into your soul and comfort you, deeply comfort you. There are those in this church uh, who are undergoing uh, deep trials right now. Trials in their own life and the lives of those whom they love. Trials of health, trials of God's provision for them. You need this gospel to comfort you. You need this to be a balm for your soul. Again, I quoted a hymn a moment ago. Let me quote one more. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. The Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. When every comfort, when every hope of this world is stripped from you, there is one thing that will not fail you. And every, one day, the hopes and the comforts of this world will be stripped from every single one of us. The one thing that will not fail is the grace of God found in Christ. Look to the one who was delivered over for your trespasses 
and who was raised for your justification. That is the gospel, the gospel of grace spoken of in this passage. Christ was delivered over for your trespasses. He was raised for your justification. Look to him, beloved. Look to him and believe and have that blessed assurance which controls, the blessed assurance which controls, the hymn writer speaks of, that Christ has regarded your helpless estate and shed his own blood for your soul. That is the gospel. The gospel was attacked. The gospel is defended. The gospel is a gospel of pure grace. And we dare not saddle it with one thing that we must do. It is all of grace. Or there is no gospel at all. Let's pray.